said, really just like very much to welcome you all. There are many familiar faces here and it's a delight to see you, um, to see you back here. And also, uh, we're very aware that for some of you, this is your first time at Gaia House. And it's really quite normal to feel a little apprehensive and wonder what you've got yourself into and be a little anxious about the unfamiliarity of the whole scene. Um, Hopefully that will pass, like most things do, and you will start to feel very much at home here. It's always something of a mystery to me why these two seats are always left empty, or perhaps it's not such a big mystery. (laughs) But if you ever do get feel a little crowded, you know, in a corner somewhere, there's two very nice seats up here at the front, just waiting for someone to warm them. Recently, a friend of mine... He he said something, uh, it was a quote I very much loved. He, he said that not everyone feels the calling to be a monk or a nun, but that everyone has a little bit of the monk or the nun within them. And it struck me as so such a, a, a kind of a lovely message um, I mean, I, I think it's probably true that very few people in this room, you know, really feel inclined to enter a monastery, to don robes and take 317 or 27 precepts and uh, live that kind of life of seclusion from the world and relationship and engagement. But maybe a good place to start tonight is to really just take a moment to reflect on what is that little bit of the monk or nun within us? And, you know, for me, it's probably what brings us all here is that little bit of the monk or the nun. I think it's that kind of voice or longing within us that, really is searching or seeking to understand what it means to live a life of integrity and mindfulness, what, it's, what it is, what it would be to discover a, a mind, a heart that really rests in love and compassion and empathy. I think the monk or the nun within us is that part of ourselves that really is dedicated to serenity, to wakefulness, and also to learning how to embody that in every area of our lives. Where we start a retreat is also exactly the same place as where we'll end the retreat and where we'll be in the middle of this retreat, which is really learning to be present with our own minds, bodies, hearts. The invitation that really is there for us all through our lives. Not one, not an invitation we always take up. Somehow it 
can feel easier or more familiar at times to be distracted or disconnected or just not so present with ourselves. And yet, of course, the truth for all of us in our lives is that things that we cannot divorce ourselves from ever, it's really the quality of our hearts, the quality of our minds, the way we are with our bodies, the way we are with the moment. And these are really the primary lessons, the starting point, the middle point, and the ending point of a retreat is to take up that invitation. Now, I'm sure that all of us know that there is much that can torment us in this life. You know, adversity and pain and illness and difficult people and situations. But we're also probably really aware that there's little in the world that can torment us as much as our own minds. With their capacity for anxiety, for attention, for obsession for reactivity. We are all aware that there's much in this life that can bring tremendous joy and happiness. You know, the people we love, the connections we have, you know, wonderful sights and events and situations. But we're probably also aware that there's really little that can bring so much happiness as a clear and peaceful mind and heart. A mind and heart that really knows what it is to rest in calm, to rest in spaciousness. And this path is really about that cultivation. The cultivation of a mind and heart which is a refuge, which can be trusted, which is a place of spaciousness and ease, that this is both the path and the fruit of the practice, and this is the mind and heart that's really possible for all of us. And that, I think that mind, that heart that's really at peace with itself is, is a mindful mind, present, knows how to be present, also knows how to let go, you know, the, the cultivation of a mind and heart of gladness is really placed so much in the center of this whole path and teaching. Because that is the mind and heart that's really so central in the whole of our lives. You know, as the Buddha put it, the mind is the forerunner of all things. Of how we act, how we speak, how we engage how we respond to the world around us. Now, the Pali, the language in which the early teachings were recorded, the word for meditation is bhavana. It's a very alive word. Bhavana translated means to cultivate, to bring into being. It's a very alive, a very kind of engaged word. And what are we cultivating? Uh, what we're cultivating is, as one teacher called it, the mind that is beautiful. You know, I think that in some circles, you know, meditation teaching, and maybe particularly Buddhist meditation teaching, has, you know, it's got kind of some bad press, and 
it's often kind of equated with the sort of ongoing grim contemplation of suffering. And, you know, when certainly when you try and, you know, some people say to me, you know, that they're a little anxious about meditation because they feel like they've already got enough suffering in their life and they, they don't need to go to pursue that contemplation. And, I mean, in one sense, it's true that this practice encourages a contemplation of suffering, not in a grim way, but it does encourage us to, to meet life's realities as they are. But above in our cultivation, you know, what we're bringing into being really are all the qualities of heart and mind that really allow us to embrace this life and this world with all its joys and its sorrows, with balance and steadiness and spaciousness, in a way with fearlessness. What we bring into being and cultivate is truly all that is lovely and healing, the Buddha once said that this Dhamma and this teaching has just one taste. He said, just like the oceans all have one taste, which is a taste of salt. He said, this Dhamma and this teaching has but one taste, which is the taste of freedom. And that that taste of freedom runs through all the layers of the practice, from the obvious to the very very subtle. I mean, I know sometimes in our lives or times when we come into a retreat and, you know, we can feel a lot of agitation or restlessness or unease or all the things, all the things we can experience. You know, that taste of freedom can really feel very far away. But what we will keep reminding you of during this week is that this is really a practice of the moment. And that the size of the task is only ever equal to the size of the moment. That we are asked to be present just with one moment at a time. Because that one moment is, of course, the mother and the father of all the moments that follow. And that one moment we learn to really attend to well becomes the parent of the clarity and that taste of freedom, the calmness that is brought into all the following moments. The Buddha said that this is a path of happiness that leads to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. Now I think it's, it's very understandable as human beings that, that we long for happiness and in many ways of course in our culture happiness is sort of idealized, isn't it? And we sort of think there's, there's something wrong with us if we're not happy, you know, that we haven't quite got it together if we're not happy. I say the highest happiness is peace. You know, for me, I, I sort of think like this, this is kind of important to make a distinction between the gladdened heart, the bright mind, the gladdened mind, and some of our conventional ideas of, happy, of happiness. Because, you know, as a human being, well, as a human being, I don't expect to be always happy, quite frankly. 
doesn't mean I'm unhappy. But we have such a spectrum of emotional responses in this life, don't we? And, and, and that is sort of a kind of emotional maturity, is to have that spectrum. And if someone we love dies, well, she's not happy. You know, there's sadness, there's grief. You know, we experience loss. We're hardly singing from the hilltops. Um, but gladness is kind of a, a different order. You know, I think, you know, we all recognize that as human beings, we're never going to be entirely in control or able to choose all of the range of events and situations and conditions that impact upon us and that come into our lives. I don't think we can imagine one person in this world who only ever has eternal health, lovely thoughts, immortality, uh, pleasant emotions, wonderful people around them, perfect job, perfect relationship. I'm pretty sure no one in the history of humankind has actually ever achieved this. I know I'm not going to be the first. So it's a kind of a gladness speaks about something different than this kind of conventional idea of happiness that is, you know, floaty, excited, exhilarated. I think the kind of quality of peace and gladness we cultivate, cultivate in the practice is of a different order. And it's really about peace with things. It's about spaciousness with things. It's about learning to embrace what is and learning to find an inner steadiness of heart that is just not so governed by the changing conditions of our life. That is actually really a taste of freedom. It's really a taste of freedom to be able to meet the difficult, to meet the wonderful, to meet the unpleasant, to meet the delightful, but to know such steadiness of heart that we're not always swinging from one extreme to the other of elation or despair, but that we really know that steadiness and sensitivity of heart that can embrace without being governed. For me, this was a great curiosity that began me, myself, in my own practice, you know, when, when I went to India as a teenager and somewhat by chance ended up in a village of Tibetan refugees in you know, 1970, many were just coming into India from Tibet. Many had just arrived, in fact. And people had the most terrible stories, you know, of, of loss and executions and deaths and imprisonments and um, really unbearable in a way in their contents. And yet what so stunned me was the inner balance, the lack of rancor, the lack of, of rage, the lack of blame and bitterness. What really struck me was the kind of radiance and, and kindness and ease that this group of people manifested. And it wasn't that they were all saints or monks or nuns. You know, ordinary villagers from all over Tibet. And what immediately struck me is, these people actually understand something I don't understand. 
They, they actually know a way of being which is completely other than anything I have ever been taught or learned. And for me, that, that was the kind of curiosity was, how can that be? How can that be that we can, that a person can live in this changing, uncertain, at times very difficult world and life? And yet to really have that heart that is free from bitterness and despair and rage, it truly was a very real manifestation of understanding and compassion. It reminded me when I came across the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the teaching of insight meditation, you know, there's one line in that, in that discourse, that teaching, that really made, kind of drew my attention back to those times when the Buddha says in this teaching of mindfulness and insight meditation, he says, learning to abide independent, not clinging to anything, and not governed by anything. And it struck me, this is the key. This is really the key. This is, is really the key that unlocks those, those doors of learning to abide independent, not clinging to anything. And of course, the Buddha wasn't talking about an independence of separation or disconnection. He was talking about that kind of inner steadiness and that that taste of freedom, not clinging to anything, not governed by anything. I really encourage you to approach this retreat. It's wonderful to have a week of stillness and silence. Such a blessing. And I think so rare in our lives to have this time, you know, how often are you in a place where everybody cooks all your meals, does your dishes, your laundry, you know, cleans up after, (laughs) you know, the whole (laughs) 24-hour day room service. (laughs) But to have a place where we're so looked after, where there's so few things that are really dragging our attention to have this time that we can really, really dedicate to cultivating the, the mindfulness, the sensitivity, the awareness that is really possible for us. So I really encourage you to treasure this time. And over the week, we'll be meeting with all of you in different ways. Um, but I really do wish you a very wonderful retreat. Just see if it'll work from there, Christine. Okay. So welcome. Welcome from me. It's um, it's really good to see you here and you're most welcome, all of you. I didn't introduce anybody. Ah, Christine is telling me <laughs> She forgot to introduce us. Now, you've probably worked out that this one is Christina. Um, and the slightly taller one is Rob, and the slightly shorter and slightly older one is John. So that's me. So um, that is us. And um, 
Please feel most welcome here. There's really just one thing I, I want to say in, in the time I have, um, and that's, while you're here, be kind. I could leave it at that, and I'm very tempted to, but let me elaborate it a little bit further. As Christina said, the time we have together here is really a rare and precious opportunity. And together we take care to try and arrange things so that we make best use of the time to deepen our understanding and to learn new ways to relate to our experience, to give us a greater sense of freedom and joy in our lives. Part of that is there are specific things we do. There are the meditation techniques, the instructions, the Dharma talks, the interviews, and so on. Um, but what I'd like to focus on are some of the more general qualities of heart and mind that are just as important a part of the whole package that really we're putting together to nurture the kind of learning we want to happen. These are qualities that really we can bring to any moment, and ideally all waking moments of the retreat, whether we're in here, in the grounds, in the dining room. One of them is obviously mindfulness, and Christina has mentioned that. But kindness is the other one. And although it may be slightly surprising, it's really just as important as mindfulness. The Buddha himself identified kindness, loving kindness, as the foundation for practice and singled it out as the one thing short of the liberating insights that come with full awakening that can help free our minds and hearts. And by kindness here, I mean the simple disposition to bring goodwill to whatever we encounter, whether it be other beings, ourself, our experience. So what I'd like to do is to gently invite your minds to entertain the possibility, just tucking it away at the back of the mind, that there is this chance to consciously nurture the intention to be kind in each of the moments that we have here. By kindness, I really just mean this simple disposition to bring goodwill. The essence, really, of kindness is non-struggle. Not needing things to be other than they are. There's this lovely phrase that I came across, um, the mind of non-contention, the mind in which we can let go of our battle with life, our battle with ourselves, the struggle to make things other than they are. And the fundamental spirit of kindness is just to allow things to be as they are. 
as far as our experience goes, not demanding that it's different, but accepting that it is as it is for good reason and that it can provide us an invaluable opportunity to learn. You know, we are presented with exactly what we need to learn from in each moment. As far as putting this in other words that we can bear in mind, there's the spirit of gentleness, allowing things just to be as they are, using whatever we encounter as grist for the mill, a spirit of patience and tolerance and generosity. And on a group this size, I can assure you there will be numerous opportunities to explore and nurture those intentions. Given the limited number of bathroom showers, the length of the waiting queues for lunch and so on. So the invitation is, as much as possible, to use these as opportunities to nurture this intention for kindness. As far as other people here, we can't speak to other people, but as we pass them, we could in to ourselves just wish them well. May you be well. As far as the creatures around, the flies, the wasps, if we encounter them stuck against a window pane, we can open it for them. We can, through numerous little acts of generosity and kindness, nurture this general sense of kindness. And as far as we go, we can, as best we can, let go the harshness that we so often bring to ourselves when our mind's wandering all over the place. And just see that this is what happens. This is a response to the conditions of this situation. That's just how it is. And learn from them. Because, you know, that's what we're about here. Learning from whatever is presented to us. Tonight, we can begin this process already. And we can arrive here. We can soften the body, soften our movements, relax, take care of ourselves, settle in gently, comfortably, and bring this spirit of kindness and nurturing as best we can to each of the moments that we have here in this rare and precious time together. I wish you a very fruitful, a very happy, and above all, a very kindly retreat. I'd just like to very much add my welcome uh, to you all, to everyone here. Welcome to Guy House. Welcome to this retreat. I just want to be brief, but there's a, a few aspects of the retreat I also want to touch on.
So, for some of you, I know, being on retreat, being in this form, is a very new environment, a very new form to be in. And there will be aspects of it that might seem exciting, other aspects that might seem strange uh, or alien in some way. One of those may be the silence. So if you don't know already, this is a silent retreat. We have had actually people show up not knowing that. Um, soon they find out. But it's a silent retreat. So that's a form that has actually evolved uh, over time. It's interesting if we sort of look at the range of spiritual traditions, mystical traditions that there are in the world, the love of silence, the, the awareness of the preciousness of silence is something that's quite central to many of those traditions. There's something there about the silence. So there's a reason why the retreat is held in silence. Basically, over the years, people have seen this is a really supportive atmosphere. There's something that we get from silence that almost we cannot get from anything else in life. So silence has a lot of power to it. One of the gifts of silence is that it aids clarity. So clearly mindfulness practice, insight practice, a lot about clarity. Silence as well allows, it supports that movement of clarity. One of the things that it allows the clarity of is a clarity about our aspirations and about our intentions. So this is always an interesting area. So what exactly are our aspirations with meditation practice, with the Dharma, with spirituality, etc. And that's going to vary widely uh, for all of us and vary for each of us at different times. But the bottom line is that there's a tremendous, almost I would say an unbelievable amount available here through practice, a kind of mind-bogglingly... expansive treasure available for us here. And in a way, we decide what we want in that ocean of what's available. We decide what the aspirations are. And the silence is one of the factors that supports that. One of the the things that silence does is it enables us to actually become clearer about our intentions and aspirations. So most of us lead very busy lives, very full, very busy. And something can happen in that momentum, in that busyness of our life. We actually can lose touch or lose our sense of clarity about what's most important to us in life. It's very easy for that to kind of get lost somehow in in the rush, in, in in the hurry of things. Very, very normal. One of the blessings of retreat space, of silence, of an atmosphere and environment like this, is that what perhaps has got swept aside or buried in terms of what's most deeply important to the heart, what we yearn for most, that can kind of rise up to the surface in the silence and become visible, become very clear. And similarly, 
the sort of flotsam and jetsam of often, unfortunately, what our pre- everyday preoccupations are filled with, that can settle like like mud settling in, in water that becomes still. It just settles to the bottom and something else becomes visible. Something else takes prominence in the consciousness. The clarity of what, what the heart yearns most for. Just that much is an enormous gift, an enormous treasure. Just to be clear about that. In the in the laundry room here, there's a there's a sign. It's been been up there for years. And I, I love it. It's a quote from the the Sufi poet Rumi, and he says, "Let silence speak to you of the secrets of the universe. Let silence speak to you of the secrets of the universe." There's, there's this acknowledgement, as I say, in different traditions, that there's something about silence. There's something that silence can give us that we can open to in silence. That is an indescribable treasure. And so, yes, we're going to talk a lot about mindfulness and meditation practice and very as precisely as we can, as clearly as we can. There's something we get from the silence in a way over and above all that. Something we would get, I would say, if we just came here and just were in silence together, respectfully together. So... This is also, as, as a group, we make a collective commitment to keep the silence together. And this is something that really is a gift, not only to ourselves, to uh, allow our practices to open, our consciousness to open, to still, but also to others. So we're really, really giving a gift to each other to support each other's practice. And I would actually suggest regarding it that way. Regarding everything about one's own practice as, as a movement of generosity. So every time we sit in the cushion, every time we go to the walking room, outside to walk, there's something about the movement of generosity. Then the silence too is, is an act of generosity to each other here. So we keep the silence except uh, for interviews, question answer periods as well, etc. But there's something about it and it's possible that sometimes we can tune in to that silence, alien though it might feel at first, strange though it might feel at first. It's a very odd social situation. We're 70-something people in the room right now, and for the most part, not talking to each other. It's very odd. Um, Can one open the consciousness to the silence, actually listen to the silence? The silence is, in a way, everywhere. It's something that in a way holds our whole experience, we can tune into that, we can open to that. Feel its embrace. There's something about silence. If we give ourselves to it, we have to give ourselves to it. And if we do, it can transform the heart, it can transform the life. Incredibly powerful. And it starts with this just noble silence, this agreement that we have together to, to keep the silence together. So, most of you are sharing rooms, and you may be in a room with someone you know, but, uh, or even that you don't know, but please, just, if you haven't introduced yourself, maybe introduce yourself tonight, and then make an agreement together to just keep the silence, to just support each other in that movement. Now, 
We've become aware recently that, unfortunately, on a lot of retreats, it seems that uh, people want to keep their mobile phones and keep using them. And sometimes people just use them as alarm clocks, but then it's there as an alarm clock, and then a message comes and says, oh, who's that, etc. So really, really, really a strong encouragement to, to let go, to renounce uh, the mobile phone. And if you want, in fact, really to encourage, just to turn it off and bury it at the bottom of the suitcase. If you, if you don't think you can get through a week uh, without checking your mobile phones or texting or something, texting doesn't make any noise, but it's not the spirit of silence. If you don't think you can do that, um, there's a 12-step program. No. Um, <laughs> if you don't think you can do... <laughs> M.A., it's called. No. If, if you don't think you can do that, give, visit the office, the reception office, tomorrow, and just give them your phone. And they'll put a little post-it note on it. This is so-and-so's phone. You can pick it up at the end of the retreat. The, the, I'm really, really serious about that. There's a treasure here with practice. Sometimes I feel people underestimate what's available in practice. And it's like, if I keep them up, I think, well, what difference does it make? But actually, we're sh- selling ourselves short really cutting off an availability of something incredibly profound, incredibly beautiful. So there's the silence. Uh, The second aspect is just about simplicity. So tonight is Friday night, and for many of you it will have been a work week and a work day. If there is something left over uh, today a piece of business or someone you need to call or whatever, and you haven't done it yet, do, do it now after we've met here. And just kind of clear the decks a little bit so you can really drop into being here and really arrive and open to being here. So if there's any business you need to finish or whatever, it's okay to use a mobile. And um, there's a pay phone as well that you've probably been introduced to around, around the back. And in a way, being on retreat, another of the treasures, as well as the science, is the simplicity. It's very, as Christine, both, both Christine and John were talking about, it's very, very simple here. If you've seen the schedule, it's very simple. You see, sitting meditation, walking meditation, sitting meditation, walking meditation, sitting meditation. It's very, very simple. We don't have to decide, hmm, what shall I do now? It's, it's very, it's given to us. Our food is given to us. Everything's given to us. There's something about that simplicity. It's a gift. It's a gift. There's, again, there's something beautiful in that for us. So we can complicate things, of course, but to try and keep the attitude of simplicity in terms of just showing up and, and giving oneself to that uh, simple way of being here. Something in the simplicity, again, opens, can open things out for us. A, a state of outer simplicity is a kind of openness. And that can allow the inner openness to open into that. What might flower for us in that openness, in that simplicity? It allows something. In a way, it's the simplicity that allows us to part of what allows us to really draw close to life, to really touch life and become intimate with life, to be touched by life. So, this insect buzzing around brings me on to my next (laughs) point. 
So we've got the silence, the simplicity. The third aspect I just want to touch on briefly is what's called sila in Pali. Pali was the language that the Buddha's words were originally recorded in. And sila translates as something like ethical guidelines or ethics or, or care and respect for how we are with ourselves and with each other and with other beings, basically. So the managers probably mentioned this in the talk, but I just want to go over briefly again. There are five, five ethical guidelines that, again, as a group, group of people basically living together for a week, practicing together for a week, we commit to together. And they are, again, they're a gesture of love, a gesture of respect to each other, and a gesture of of mutual support. So really there's something of the gift again in here. Gift to ourselves and gift to each other. Five precepts, five guidelines to endeavor to keep to. The first is non-harming. So... I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty big. Um, <laughs> yes. Um, tempting, uh, because one is afraid or just considers a nuisance, insects, etc., to just squash them and just kind of obliterate that. All beings wish for life. All beings wish for health and happiness. And we respect that. And the gesture of love to each other, but also to non-human beings. Uh, runs through our practice and supports our practice and supports the practice of others. So there's together this commitment to non-harming, as John was saying beautifully, of of kindness. You see how that's a gift that we're setting up, we're setting up a climate, we're setting up an atmosphere here that allows everyone to let go, to let down the guard, to trust. Non-harming, Second one is not taking what is not given. So again, similar movement of love, of respect, of allowing others to trust and let go. Guy House is a place you can, I shouldn't say there's two household managers here, but you can leave something somewhere and it will still be there. Uh, (laughs) Given that our two wonderful household managers haven't cleaned it up. But it will still be there days later because people are not taking stuff that's not there. So again, it just allows everyone to let go. don't need to be keeping an eye out, keeping the guard up. So basically we have everything we need and we can just let go into that. The third precept is around the way we are with our sexuality. Outside of retreat, this means really taking care with our sexuality, that our the, the, way we, the way we express uh, our sexuality is imbued with respect, with care, with, with love, and with non-harming. In the context of this retreat, what it means is, for all of us, is abstaining from deliberate sexual activity. So it's a, it's a climate of abstinence. And again, what, what is this? It's not because sexuality is bad at all. It's a very beautiful part of a human being. But it allows everyone to just not have to worry about that for the week. Not worry, why are they looking at me like that? What's going on there? Just let go of all that, the simplicity, the, the trust that's allowed. The fourth one has to do with speech. Outside of retreat, this is probably the most difficult. And the Buddha says, 
Can we speak non without harshness? Can we speak the truth? Can we speak? Uh, can we not indulge in gossip or in uh, what's called divisive chatter, uh, divisive words, things that split, take, separate people, set one person against another? Very simple, as I mentioned earlier for, for us in this retreat. It just means uh, the silence. Just means the silence. Lastly, the fifth precept has to do with what we ingest, substances we take into the body, uh, taking care of our heart and mind. So for this retreat, what it means is a total abstinence from drink and uh, drugs. So, um, again, if you came with you know, a bottle of Southern Comfort or whatever, just... Just to bury. Um, this is also for a reason. It's supporting. It's supporting the capacity of the mind and the heart for clarity, for openness, for sensitivity. This is as much as clarity is a part of the, uh, the path. Sensitivity is too. And in a way, we need our sensitivity. We need to cultivate and really take care of our sensitivity and our capacity to be sensitive human beings. The substances which dim that or cloud it or, or dull it, we, we need to really be careful with. So as I say, those are the five precepts. And they're there as a gift to ourselves, a gesture of love, a gesture of respect, a gesture of support to ourselves, to everyone here. To everyone. So there's a community of people that feel safe and trusting and open together and can therefore deepen in their practice. Okay. I too wish you a very lovely, very fruitful retreat and uh, look forward to meeting with you over the days. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.